This is the Worth Recovery Podcast, featuring women in addiction. Welcome back to Worth Recovery, a podcast featuring women and sex addiction. I'm Amy. I'm a recovering sex addict, and I have been sober since December 2nd of 2012. This is episode 23. So excited about that. I don't know why, but I just am. So episode 23, this is a continuation of our deep dive into the 12 steps. We're continuing today with step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. In episodes 17, 19, and 21, we've discussed step two. And we've talked about the different components of this step and what they mean in our lives. We explored the nuances in the words and the meanings behind insanity. We discussed how to challenge our ideas of what a higher power is and really find a higher power that works for us in our lives. But the question now is, how do I work this step in my life? How do I make the components all work for me? How do I actually go through that process of defining my higher power? How do I recognize and change my insanity? How do I find the hope that I need to continue on in recovery? How do I do all these things? And that, that's my goal today for episode 23. My goal is to give you some ideas and some suggestions on how I did it. And hopefully you can adapt those to really work this step in your life. Because I really believe that step two is so much a step of action. It requires me to think, to challenge myself, and to make some commitments. How many times did I pray? over and over again, asking my higher power to remove this addiction from me? How many times did I ask for strength to stop the desire and the compulsion to act out? So many times I asked, so many times I begged, I cried, I pleaded for it all to be taken away. And then sometimes, even just minutes afterwards, I I did the same thing. I acted out. I acted the same way. I fell into my default thinking over and over again. Step two is really where we start the process of change. We start to believe that a restoration to sanity is possible. And we start to lay the foundation for lasting change in our lives. But this requires some commitments. I know commitment's not sometimes a very fun word. And maybe it's not one of your favorite words, and maybe you're even commitment phobic. Yeah, I know, okay? But I challenge you to, to, to really think about that because you have a commitment. You have a commitment to addiction. You're committed to acting out. I was committed to addiction. Whether I wanted to be or not, it was part of me. I was committed to that. Whether I was even conscious of it or not, my actions were saying that I was committed to addiction. And if I was going to change those commitments, I had to start being committed to other things. So today we're going to discuss the four commitments that I feel are really inherent in step two. I believe these four commitments lay the foundation of all of our step work going forward. 
In fact, I would say even our entire recovery going forward, they are that essential to what we're going to do to recover from addiction. So let's start. Commitment number one, we came. You begin to work this step with the commitment to go to meetings. Not just when it's convenient, not just when you want to, not even when you just need a meeting, but every single week. You make the commitment to go to a meeting. I don't really care if you wanna go. I don't care if you think meetings are stupid. I don't care if you're busy or if you have a schedule that's really tight. If you want recovery, if you want your life to be different, you have to be willing to do different things. And that requires a commitment to go to a meeting every single week, at least one, maybe even more, especially especially in the beginning. Early in my recovery, I went to two to three fellowship meetings a week. I met with my therapist every week, and sometimes it was even twice a week. I also met with my sponsor once a week. Honestly, it felt like a part-time job. Between meetings, therapy, homework, step work, researching, reading, journaling, it it was a part-time job. But then I really thought about it. Addiction pretty much had been my life. I had been losing hours and hours and hours to addiction, to acting out, to my preoccupation cycle, to ritualization. Now I was replacing all of that time with recovery. Recovery was my life. I made a commitment. You need to make a commitment to attend. You've heard me talk about my therapist who at my very first addiction appointment said, Amy, addiction recovery is a three to five year process. Three to five years, I know, right? Sounds crazy. But I'm so grateful for that because I knew this wouldn't be a six month episode in my life. I knew it was going to take years to recover. I knew I had to make a commitment to stick with it for the long run. I wasn't going to put in a weak effort. I was in for the long haul. If someone hasn't told you that yet, let me be the voice of commitment for you. Addiction recovery is a three to five year process. And that is if you work hard at it. If you're only putting in a half effort, a half measure the big book would call it, then it will take double that time. Put in the effort and make the commitment. I've been in recovery since July of 2011, nearly five years. My current routine includes three weekly meetings, two for sex addiction and one for another 12-step program that I attend. I meet weekly with the four women that I sponsor. I also meet weekly with my own sponsor. In addition to that, I meet weekly with my therapist. Just those meetings alone add up to about 10 hours a week. Will it always be that way? Probably not. But right now, that is what it is. And it's working for me. And that is what matters. Make the commitment. Come. We came. That's how this step starts. Came. Commitment number two. Using the first two words of the step, came to. The reason going to meetings is so essential is because it exposes us to thinking other than our own. When we consistently attend meetings, we get to know the people in our group. We start to become acquainted to who they are, their stories, and their lives. As we sit in meetings, we listen to them share about their lives and their addictions. We hear about how they respond to life on life's terms. We listen to them talk about triggers, relapses, family issues, spouses, and work. We get angry for them and sometimes at them, for if we're honest, right? We feel jealous and resentful. 
we learn about their reality and what they are doing to recover. And it starts to sink in. Their story is our story. We start to see ourselves in their shares. And then we wake up, we come to, we say, I've been in denial about so many things in my life. So many things. Not just my addiction, but so many other things. And there we start to see reality. Coming to is a commitment to reality. We start to wake up to the wreckage of our lives. Not just our addiction, but our own faulty thinking and faulty actions when it comes to our lives and the lives of those around us that we care about. We start to peel back the layers of sexually addictive behavior and look at the reality of what lies beneath. We see the wreckage of our past and we sit with it instead of trying to numb out or escape. We make the commitment to reality. This is not an easy thing to do. Sometimes listening to others at meetings is so very triggering for me. That trigger can be emotional or physical. Early on, I left meetings and acted out within hours sometimes. Seeing the wreckage of my own life is hard. It is so hard. And I'm not used to feeling things. I have always numbed my feelings in some way. Sex, food, video games, TV, reading, whatever it was. Some way, I was always numbing my feelings. Sitting with the wreckage of my life, coming to to my own reality, requires me to sit in emotion, to lean into the pain, my therapist used to say. I hated that phrase for so long. Lean into the pain, Amy. But now I totally see what it means. It means I sit in it. I explore it, I write about it, I talk about it, I ask questions. And somewhere in that process, the pain leaves after delivering the message it needed to deliver. This also meant, for me, coming to reality also meant I had to give up fantasy. Fantasy had been my friend. Fantasy had been with me my entire life. From the time I was very little, very young, I lived in a fantasy world. I had a hardcore commitment to fantasy. It got me through much of my life. It was my constant companion. When I was lonely, I just imagined someone to be there to talk to. When I was sad, I always had someone to cheer me up. There was always someone nearby in my fantasy world. But more than just the people around me in my fantasy world, there was all sorts of other fantasy I was committed to. I was committed to the fantasy about what my life should be like. I was committed to the fantasy of entitlement, what I deserved, what I thought life should give me. I was committed to the fantasy of about justice and fairness, that life should be fair, that we should all have exactly the same opportunities. Fantasy is so much like denial. It prevents me from seeing and living in reality. I had to have a commitment to reality if I wanted to come to and really in order to move on in my life. It was hard. It was so hard. What I did though, I did it by singing a song to myself. Back in the 80s, there was this British R&B band, I think, called Soul to Soul. And they had a song and like, it was just the same lyrics repeated over and over again. Like seriously, like 80% of the song is the exact same lyrics. But all these are the lyrics and I'll even sing it to you. Back to life, back to reality, back to life, 
back to reality. Over and over and over again, the song says that. Back to the here and now, yeah, right? And every time I found myself in fantasy, I would sing this song over and over and over again. (laughs) Seriously, like over and over again until I wasn't in fantasy anymore. I found this behavior that would pull me back into the present moment. It was highly effective for me. That's probably because I like to sing and because I love music. But it helped me remember that I had to get back to life, real life that was happening, and back to reality, not in my fantasy world anymore. There are a lot of little routines and rituals that you can do to get present and to stay out of fantasy. But you have to pick one and make a commitment. Make a commitment to reality. Make a commitment to come to, to understand and see your life for what it is right now in this moment. The third commitment that we have to make in working step two is the commitment of believing in a higher power willing to help us. This might be the hardest of all the commitments inherent in this step. I don't know. Believing in a higher power ready and able to restore us to sanity. This is where a lot of the hard work was for me in step two. I had a belief in a higher power, but I wasn't quite willing to believe that this higher power cared enough about me to actually help. At first, I had much more faith in my group members, my therapist, my sponsor. They were helping me. They were my higher power for my early recovery. I did everything they recommended, suggested, or even slightly hinted at. They were in front of me, real people doing real work. I could see the results of their actions in their own lives. And so I trusted them and I did what they asked me to do. But my sponsor told me that wasn't enough. She told me I needed to develop a belief in a higher power that was willing to help me. She had me do a few different things in order to help me with that belief. Uh, The first thing she did was give me lots of reading assignments. (laughs) I read chapter four from the big book, We Agnostics. I read all sorts of readings about higher powers and from the 12 and 12, from our fellowship book, from other fellowship books. I did all sorts of reading about how people came to believe in a higher power. And then I had to write, I had to write about what I believed about God. I have, a, I have my journal, my step work journal that, um, that I keep all of this stuff in. And so I pulled it out because I wanted to remember what did I write? So this is what I wrote about what I believed about God way back in 2011 when I started. It says, I have never doubted the existence of a higher power, one whom I call my God. From the time I was a little girl, I knew of his existence. I could feel his influence in my life. I knew he was aware of me and I knew that he loved me. I took refuge in his teachings and in my church attendance. As I grew up, I started making mistakes and even pushing boundaries. Sometimes I felt at odds and even estranged from God. I knew he was still there, but didn't really feel worthy of his love or trust. As addiction began to take over my life, the gulf between us seemed to grow bigger. I knew that he offered forgiveness and peace. I had seen that happen in other people's lives, but I came to a point where I believed that I had really gone too far. I had gone past the line, the big red line that says, I will forgive you up to this point, but past that, you're on your own. I really felt that his love was conditional on how I performed. 
I believed that somewhere in heaven there was a gigantic scale that weighed the good and the bad that I did, and the only way I could be forgiven is if the good side outweighed the bad. Because of my addiction, I was constantly looking for ways to serve other people and for ways to prove to God that I was worth forgiving. But every time I did something wrong or acted out, I knew I was tipping the scales the other direction. Wow, that's pretty revealing, huh? Pretty revealing about where I was. From there, I, made a li- I was asked to make a list about the things that I believed about God. Things like, here's a few of them. God's love is conditional upon performance. God's help and forgiveness are also conditional and must be earned through sacrifice and service. God is willing to help others, but not me because I haven't sacrificed enough. I must be worthy before I am eligible for help. God has favorites who have easier lives than me. Because I can't get my addiction under control myself, I am less worthy than other people. These are just some of the beliefs I had about God. This list is actually very, very long and includes belief I have about some of the trauma that happened to me or to my family, beliefs I have about my worthiness for marriage, beliefs I have about God making me ugly and undesirable. I had a lot of things I blamed God for in my life. I put them all down. Everything I believed about God, I wrote it down. Even things that I believed about where God lived, what shape he had, what I felt his desires were for the world in general, what my relationship was to him. I put it all down. If I was really going to challenge my beliefs about God, I needed to know exactly what they were. And so I wrote them down, all of them. Next, I needed to explore why or where I got these beliefs. To do this, I used a process from our fellowship book that my sponsor recommended. I made a chart with four columns. In the first column, I listed powerful people in my life. These are people that had some type of position or authority over me or whom I gave a position of authority over me. They included like my mom, my dad, my older sister, church leaders, bosses, some of the men I acted out with, some of my friends, anybody that I felt had a position of power over me that I either gave to them or they just were inherent by our relationship. The second column I titled, What Happened? And I wrote about what happened with that person. Did they abandon me? Did they blame me unjustifiably? Were they yellers or ragers? When I came to them for help, how did they respond? What was their response to me when I was in crisis? How about when I was being successful? I wrote about our relationship and I wrote about how they responded to me. In the third column, I titled, What I Learned About God. Looking at what happened in our relationship, I thought about what I learned in relation to powerful people in my life. What did the way these powerful people respond to me teach me about the way God would respond to me? This was incredibly enlightening and incredibly insightful. I started to see the patterns about other people and God. I started to see how these people and our interactions shaped how I felt and the beliefs that I had about a higher power. The fourth column was titled, What I Choose to Believe Today. This was hard. I took each of these beliefs that I had about a higher power individually. I thought about it. I prayed about it. I wrote about it. I talked about it. I asked questions about it. I had to ask myself, do I still believe this about God? Do I believe that God plays favorites? 
No, no, I don't. I choose to believe that everyone on earth is equal in God's eyes and he cares about each one of us individually. Do I believe that God is willing to help everyone except me? No, no, I don't. In fact, I know that my higher power helps me on a daily basis. I have had so many experiences that point to God's hand in my life, and there is no denying that. Do I believe that God's love is conditional? No, I do not. This one was hard for me. I struggled for a long time. But this came to me over time as I asked God to help me understand this. As I looked around at people in their varying circumstances and I felt love and compassion for them. As I learned compassion and empathy for those around me who had harmed me, caused problems in my life, I learned that love could be unconditional. I had to work to understand this one, but it has been completely worth it in my life. There are things and beliefs that I'm still working through. There are still limiting beliefs I have about myself and a higher power, but I'm committed to working through them. And I know enough to know that my higher power will help me work through them. And that's what's important. This exercise really helped me understand my higher power and my relationship to him. It changed my life. It changed my recovery. Make a commitment to understand your higher power, whatever that looks like for you. Challenge those beliefs that you have had. Fire the God of your childhood and develop a belief and an understanding of your higher power and how the help that you need will come. Our last commitment, commitment number four, is the commitment to hope. Though hope is not a word used in this step, it is definitely a major part of moving forward and definitely an underlying theme here. After understanding the powerlessness and the unmanageability in our lives, we can sometimes be filled with despair. After completing our step one story and seeing the wreckage that we have in our lives, after committing to reality and actually feeling the feelings of our lives, it can be dark, it can be depressing, it can be discouraging and I would say even lonely. These are hard things. And sometimes we are experiencing these hard things for the first time without any sort of drug to help numb us. There are dark moments, hours, days, sometimes even weeks. I guarantee that there will be in recovery. For me, it felt like I was sinking to the bottom of the ocean, staring up at the surface, at the blue sky and the sun, but not being able to swim up. No matter how hard I tried, I was drowning. Staring at the sun, but drowning just the same. So how do you stay committed to hope when you can't seem to get to the surface of the water for more air? What I did was I started a hope journal. I call, Well, I called it a remembrance journal, but it was definitely a hope journal. I filled it with uplifting quotes, notes from people, quotes from books I had read, I wrote down experiences I had where I knew my higher power was working in my life, where I saw change. Sometimes it was just one line about seeing something differently or seeing how I was changing or how I responded differently to something. Sometimes it was a massive story about a major event in my life, but I kept a hope journal and on those dark days I would read it. And sometimes I would read it more than once, right in a row. Sometimes I read it three or four times and I just kept adding to it. 
I have a card my nephew gave me where he tells me he loves me. I have a note from my sponsor about the hard work that she had seen me do and being proud of me. I have an email from my therapist expressing the changes that he has seen in my life and how proud he is of me and the hard work that I've been doing. I have experiences in my life where I've changed, where I made amends, where I fixed something. All of these things give me hope. And reading them over and over again fills me with hope when I can't see the surface anymore. This is how I stayed committed to hope. This is how I stay committed to hope now. Even when I don't want to, and even when it seems hard, I stay committed to hope. These four commitments. Commitments to coming to meetings. Commitments to coming to, to living in reality. The commitment of help from our higher power and the commitment to hope lay a solid foundation for you to build on. As you move forward in your step work, these commitments will be critical. In step three, we make a decision to turn our will and our life over to God. Understanding your higher power and the commitment you have to hope will help you do that. In step four, as we take an inventory of the things we have done in our lives, your commitment to reality and your commitment to hope will help you make it through that. I could go on and on. These commitments really lay this solid foundation that you can build a solid recovery on. It's not easy. Believe me, I get that. Remember, I'm an addict just like you. But remember that this is a process. This isn't a one and done type event in your life. Recovery is a process. Step two is a process, but it's one that has big dividends. It has in my life. And I know as you go forward and make these commitments in your life, find some way, some action, some way to memorialize them, some ritual, some routine that you can build into your life that will help you to remember these commitments and to stay focused. Step two, step two for me was like putting on glasses. Everything in the world was kind of fuzzy. And all of a sudden, I put on a pair of glasses that brings into focus the things that I really need to work on. And that's what step two was like for me. Bringing into focus my higher power. Bringing into focus my commitment to reality. Bringing into focus my commitment to meetings. And bringing into focus my hope. When I brought those things into focus... My life started to change. I started to see. I started to see where I needed to go. And I started to see the things that needed to happen in my life in order to live in recovery. As always, I hope you remember that no matter what is going on in your life, no matter how far you think you've gone, no matter how you feel right now in this moment, you are worth recovery. 100% worth that. I know that. And I hope you do too. Keep up the fight. No matter how slow the progress is, keep moving in the right direction. I think about you. I pray for you. I love you. Until next time, Amy. stuff.
The mission of Worth Recovery is to dispel shame and build hope in the lives of women struggling with and recovering from sex addiction. I am not associated with any 12-step group, religious organization, or therapeutic clinic. I am an addict sharing my own experiences and recovery.